Well, good evening, Mick. Nice to see you again. Last time I saw you, you were heading off to Ukraine. Uh, yeah, made it off to Ukraine and uh, and back again. Um, and it was, uh, you know, a long, hard trip. This time went all the way to Kiev, took the vehicle over, took the medical and the supplies for the soldiers on the front line. Um, relatively, relatively calm and quiet whilst we were there, but a long, long drive. Indeed. Well, it is. It's about 2,000 kilometres, isn't it? Yeah, I think it was about 1,800 miles all in from uh, from Pontypris. So we left early on the Thursday morning. Um, we did have a breakdown along the way. The belt went on the vehicle, but we found some Ukrainian uh, mechanics who were working in Krakow, and uh, they worked through the night to get the vehicle fixed. And then we got straight through to Kiev. We met with the battalion uh, uh, officers there and members of the Ukrainian Miners Union because one of the battalions there, eighty percent of the uh, uh, soldiers are are miners, uh, and uh, they took it. And the day later, it was on the front line. And you uh, went there actually on the anniversary, didn't you? Yeah, it was um, it was quite an emotive um, experience for me because, of course, I was in Kiev with a delegation, literally until the day or two before the actual invasion. In fact, we we were told we had to leave very quickly uh, because I think everyone knew what was going to happen. The invasion was about to start. So, being there exactly one year on, uh, a lot of the world's press, of course, was there. Zelensky was meeting with the president of Poland. Uh, Biden had arrived on the on the Monday just to upstage our visit. Um, so uh, there was a lot happening there, and I think there was an expectation that there might be a lot of missile attacks. It was relatively calm. There were, of course, some reconnaissance drones that were. They were shot down, and there were, of course, a number of uh, uh, air raid warnings uh, that took place. Everyone has these apps now, and the apps actually um, g- uh, give an air raid warning signal, and when you get them on your phone, you then really have to go and seek shelter. So we went into the, these arcades that are under the streets. But it was relatively calm, of a, a sort of strange and subdued normality and of course you can't stay out late as for very long in cave because the curfew is at 11 o'clock so most things shut at nine so subject to that relatively normal but really really pleased that we got all the equipment we that we were we had uh, to take over all the medical stuff all the uh, warm weather supplies uh, the drones and the satellite phones and things which they're really desperate for and uh, everything went to plan and of course, there's some fierce fighting going on in the east now, isn't there? Well, in the uh, Bakhmut area in uh, in the east, obviously, that has been an area for months now where almost the entire weight of the Soviet army has been uh, has been thrown at it. But, of course, Bakhmut still stands. Bakhmut has not been conquered. It's not a particularly important uh, town. It's a relatively small town, you know, about the size, probably about the size of Pontypridd, perhaps a bit bigger than Pontypridd, but not not that much. But what has actually happened, it's become almost a sort of symbolic uh, place of resistance. The problem with it is, is that it, there really is a terrible loss of life. Um, Russia is throwing many of its sort of Wagner forces uh, at Ukraine. Many of these are people that have been let out of prison uh, on the grounds that they will serve in the forces, and these people are being pushed forward. I saw a report today that the estimated death toll 
of Russian soldiers, uh, particularly the Wagner soldiers, is somewhere between 20 to 30,000 over the past couple of months, which is really quite horrifying. And of course, Ukrainian troops are, uh, are suffering as well, not, not at the same scale, but the scale of deaths overall is really quite grim. And it just, just brings you back to see what, what the point of it is, you know, the, the mad ambition of one person in Moscow. Uh, it's just so sad to see. Is there any evidence at all that his backing is waning? It, it doesn't seem to be that from, from you know, BBC reports from the correspondents who are still there. There appears to be a, a more solid um, galvanising of public support in his favour than there was before, although I know we, you know, we see a presented version. Well, I think what you have in Russia now, of course, is that part of the war is the actual control of the media, the propaganda, the messages that are being put out, that somehow this is a sort of a campaign against Nazism. I mean, it's an irony because all the things that are being uh, uh, alleged against Ukraine uh, are, are almost e endemic within within Russia itself. But it's, you know, it's the, it's the, the, it's the lessons that... You know, it's very clear Putin has learned from the Second World War so many similarities in terms of the strategy. You know, you find someone to, to blame, you try and claim that you've got Russian speakers that are being oppressed, you try and find some reason for doing it. And then you just you just build on that and you control all the news. Uh, no one can speak out. Anyone that speaks out gets suppressed, gets arrested. Uh, and, of course, that has been happening as well. Many Russians have, um, have fled the country. Um, but it's, you know, you, you look at the, you know, Goebbels viewed you in the Second World War in terms of propaganda and how you actually control that narrative. And, of course, that's what he does. So many of those um, things that are being said and raised are very much for internal consumption by the Russian population uh, who actually sort of believe much of what's being said. Yes, well, it appears that way. And obviously all of the opposition students and others who used to protest, some of them still do, but most of them don't because they've either been rounded up and put in prison uh, or, or frightened off, really. Well, that's that, that's very much happened. I mean, there is virtually no protest now taking place within Russia itself. And the same very much now in Belarus. The president there, Lukashenko, and of course people will remember the, the, the protests against what they regarded as a uh, fraudulent uh, election. And of course he had to call on Russian support to actually stay in office. And it's very clear that uh, uh, Belarus is now slowly being annexed i think in a way in which putin wants to do with ukraine as well obviously that's another element and we'll have to see what happens there it wouldn't help ukraine at all though if they join in in a serious way will it uh, no i mean at the moment i think lukashenko uh, remains uncertain about the loyalty of the belarusian army and i suspect there are things going on which are regard with regard to increasing uh, Russian control over those forces and resources. But so far, Belarus has, although it has allowed, of course, attacks on Ukraine from its territory, uh, it hasn't utilized its own forces yet. Now, that may be an indication of his internal political weakness, which still exists. And, of course, there are many Belarusians who are actually fighting on the Ukrainian side uh, in this war as well, just as there are, in fact, Chechens and Georgians as well. What do you think of the international position and maybe the position of China on all this? Uh, well, China is a, a sort of a discrete 
neutrality, isn't it? It's, it's supportive of Putin. It is probably supplying uh, materials that assist the Russian war effort, perhaps in the technology side. It has been hesitant to go further than that because, of course, much of its economic interest is tied up with trade with America and trade with the West. And uh, any direct and overt engagement would probably mean that there would be sanctions against China. That would hit the Chinese economy quite significantly. So what China has been doing has been buying, of course, Russian gas and oil, and that has helped to fund the Russian economy and to keep the Russian economy going and to fund the war effort as well. And, of course, India has been doing something similar. So the international position is not consistent across all the, you know, the whole of the world. Certainly the West, the industrialised West, uh, is very much behind Ukraine. And I think Biden's visit to Kiev, you know, during a war situation, I think was very, very uh, important. It's a very, very indication of uh, American uh, support. And that has been absolutely vital to enable Ukraine to defend itself. You know, the arrangements for it, where the journalists, uh, when the journalists arrived in Ukraine, they found that Biden was already there. So the planning of it, the fact that he went there by train from Poland, so, you know, a long train journey, this was quite a significant effort uh, to get him there. He was there several hours, and then, of course, he went to Poland to meet with the Polish president. But it was a, a very important and symbolic uh step. It was also an indicator to China as well in terms of where America stands and seeing through it. It was also very much a, a, a statement to Russia because I think Russia had thought, as it happened when Crimea was occupied and when Russia invaded eastern Ukraine um, you know, six or seven years earlier, uh, that uh, you know the West would do nothing, that Ukraine would collapse, and this would all be over within a matter of days. Uh, well, clearly that hasn't happened and isn't going to happen. Um, the question is really, how does the war come to an end? Well, at this stage, it probably only comes to an end when Ukraine is able to push out Russian forces, and of course, in Bakhmut and in uh, eastern Ukraine, you know, and you're talking about a, a front line that is about 800 miles long. So this isn't some sort of narrow area. This is an enormous expanse of uh, of area with, with Europe's largest uh, nuclear power plant right in the middle. So uh, it will heat up. There will be undoubtedly a counteroffensive within a couple of months. That may well determine the future direction of the war. And this this double standard, isn't there, that there's the two world powers that could annihilate each other and they tell each other when their presidents are moving around. Yeah, they actually th inform them so there isn't an accidental accident. Yeah, there are strange uh, protocols, aren't there? There, are sort of, there is a line that neither side wants to cross over. Um, obviously, the knocking down, I suppose, of the American drone aggravates matters further. And, of course, Russia denies it. But, of course, the video film that's been seen, I think, is pretty uh, conclusive as to what happened. But the fact that America uh, is basically treating this as a sort of, well, uh, as a, an event that shouldn't be overplayed, I think, is an indication that no one wants to step too much further forward towards uh, direct conflict. 
um, which is why the what happens on the ground in Ukraine is so so important because in many ways uh, that's where the resolution to the war and this conflict is going to take place. Not really in terms of any engagement between uh, the superpowers. You know, superpower engagement is um, is really unthinkable. So uh, Ukraine has to defend its territory, and the Ukrainians will, as as people can see, they've been doing. Poland is now sending the first four MiG-29 jets, so they are on the way to Ukraine now, and Poland is basically servicing and preparing another batch to go. Uh, I suspect that will trigger other countries in terms of doing the same, certainly with the older Soviet jets, because they are re require less training in respect of Ukrainian pilots. Um, but uh, I suspect it uh, may well be that preparations are in hand in terms of some of the typhoons and uh, other uh, jets uh, going over. Otherwise, why would uh, we be training um, Ukrainian pilots? So it's likely to replicate the position with tanks, really, that eventually there will be some planes. I mean, I know we've got we've got some fighters that are kind of being pensioned off. They're still pretty tidy in the sense of, you know, the, the, the conflict out there and the planes that they be attacking and fighting. But they are being withdrawn and replaced by our air force and they're sitting there so yeah and they, they, listen these are not insignificant uh, pieces of technology they may be old but they are very very important pieces ukraine has the pilots capable of uh, of flying them uh, there is training that's needed they aren't things that you can just sort of hand over there you go off you go you need to have the teams to support and to maintain them as well you need the fuel you need the arrangements in terms of the security of the jets themselves so um, uh, that that is happening, and that's very important. And I, it's sort of gone quiet a bit, hasn't it? And mm. um, I suspect it's gone quiet a bit because it's probably more happening than uh, uh, than yes, we know about. They don't want the press really uh, getting and, hold of it. Uh, and prep, and of course, preparations underway mm. in terms of where the counteroffensive is going to take place and how and when. Well, you're back here now. I mean, this, this must be very strange. We've had this conversation before, but now it's gone on for more than a year. That you've got your family actually involved in this over there so you must be on pins about that most of the time it, it is it is strange i mean i get uh, i mean going over i've got a, a nephew who's um, a doctor so he asked me if we could bring suchers over you know the stitching yeah um he says the ukrainian stuff is better used for uh, for fishing than uh, than for <laughs> stitching um but anyway so so bringing supplies and things like that over and trying to get near sell by date materials that can take over are important i think what was interesting was was coming back the trains were just so on time and they were <laughs> and they were and they were operating and uh, uh, we got the train in Kiev on uh, friday the 20 evening friday the 24th an overnight carriage uh, it was all exactly on train. We got in exactly on time. We got through the border in Poland on time, arrived in uh, Warsaw, uh, got to the airport and then back home. So um, I, I think what I'm hoping to do now, though, is to uh, it may be we get another vehicle over just before in the next few weeks. But uh, I do need to spend some time with family, obviously family uh, busily engaged uh, well, supporting the local economy, supporting uh, the the troops, and also some are involved in uh, fighting on the front line. So I do hope I get an opportunity to go and uh, spend a couple of days with family before they go off back to the conflict, if that's possible, or or those with whom it is possible. 
Yes, it's good that local people have supported you to the point of giving you vehicles that don't have to be returned. That's, I mean, that's you know makes the trip totally efficient in the sense that even the vehicle is donated, isn't it? Well, the support you've had from uh, local companies, from Senate members across all political parties, support from charitable groups, from churches, from community groups, uh, has been absolutely uh, phenomenal. It has enabled us to purchase these vehicles i mean these you know these are vehicles that you know done 150 to 200,000 miles they are not new uh, vehicles but you know they are they, they are sound and they're absolutely vital in terms of moving about on the front line uh, distributing supplies taking the wounded taking medical supplies and even sometimes participating in operations so uh, the first one we took over um, unfortunately has been uh, was hit by artillery so that's been destroyed uh, the second and third ones are, are there and are operating hoping to get another one over as well uh, in a not too distant future so they are really really important but none of this could happen without the support of the people in wales uh, and organizations you know, we've had donations from companies i can i mean one company mentioned alchemist in uh, in nantgaru uh, made a very very generous donation which enabled us to buy a lot of kit um, we've had others from trade union branches, uh, National Mine Workers, GMB, PCS. Many trade unions have given support uh, as well. And, of course, from Senate members, because the last uh, journey we took over was really on behalf of the Welsh Parliament, uh, the Senate, uh, on behalf of all four political parties. So I think that unity in Wales has been something that has been very, very uplifting. You know. It's really impressive, uh, Wales has been enormously supportive and, and it looks like it will continue to be for as long as it's necessary and that looks like a long time. Well, we've given commitment, we've given a lot of support. I mean, you, well, Wales as a nation of sanctuary, of course, has been supporting refugees from various parts of the, the country. I mean, interestingly enough, the number of Syrians we have in Wales who again are here because of Putin's actions in Syria... Uh, and have a lot of common cause with Ukrainians. The same we see what's happening in Iran and, of course, in Afghanistan and the, you know, the terrible events that are taking place there and the way women are treated there. So, you know, we, we, we have that. But, uh, of course, there are something like 7,000 Ukrainians in Wales, mainly women and children for, for obvious reasons. I was talking to a friend in Scotland, really. There are 20,000 Ukrainians in Scotland. I met with the Irish minister yesterday who um, was was very amusing when she pointing out, of course, that their patron saint, saint happens to be a, a Welshman. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but aside from that, but of course, they've done a, a tremendous amount in terms of supporting Ukrainian families, as have many other countries. And that support has been absolutely vital in those families and children being protected, being able to go to school in some normality. Uh, while uh, the war takes place in Ukraine. Yes, the support from the UK nations, all of them actually, has been impressive, hasn't it? Yes. One of the candidates for Nicola Sturgeon's job may have shot himself slightly in the foot yesterday by asking um, a room mainly full of Ukrainian women where the men were. 
Well, the you know, sometimes people don't actually realise and understand the scale of displacement of people. I mean, from Ukraine, you're talking about 15 million displaced people. Now, say half of them are internally displaced. That is, they've moved to the quieter parts, further away from the front, but are still in Ukraine. Um, but the others have moved, uh, have had to go abroad. And, of course, uh, we have Ukrainians here who have direct connections with family members who are fighting in Ukraine. In fact, you can't leave Ukraine if you're 16 plus, between 16 and 60, unless you have, you know, three children. There are some very specific reasons, uh, categories of people that can. Uh, and that, of course, is because the war effort has to be sustained. But it's allowing women and children to, uh, uh, to be go basically where they can be safe uh, uh, and secure uh, whilst the war is underway. That having been said, there are some 40,000 women in the Ukrainian forces. Uh, so there are Ukrainian women who are on the front line, who are there as snipers, who are working on artillery, who are working in, in, um, in, in military units. So there's quite a phenomenal um, uh, role and input, which has been quite amazing. You see some of the pictures of these uh, groups of, um, of women in military kit with, uh, with arms, etc., who are there fighting on the front line. It, you know, it is of concern when you have someone at a senior political level with probably what is the most significant and important geopolitical battle that is going on since the Second World War, uh, not recognising the, the, the tens of thousands of people that Scottish government is actually supporting coming into Scotland yeah. are mainly women and children and why that is. But, uh, you know, it's not for me to interfere in Scottish political affairs. <laughs> no, I wasn't trying to draw any comment. And, and um, luckily for you, fairly controversial decision to hardly build any roads at all in Wales, which is not actually the case. Yeah. When you read through the <laughs> you read through the report, there are some roads that are still going to be built. It's like not no roads are going to be built at all. But you, you sidestep that one by going to Ukraine. Really, obviously, you're part of the government that of is, course, that, of is course. that is looking at this, and and you know the the uh, the whole green issue is. A really complicated issue, actually, yeah. isn't it? It is. I mean, listen, the whole issue of roads and its interconnectivity with public transport and how you get shift of people more towards public transport than roads. You know, if if, if you accept that, that roads are not a, a long-term solution, that you can't just keep building more and more roads. I mean, I look around at the Pontypridd area uh, and Taffale area uh, and... Quite frankly, with some planning permissions, my main grounds of, of objection to them uh, are having the infrastructure yeah. in terms of people to have transport. And it's not so much infrastructure for roads, because quite frankly, I'm not quite sure you can do that much more with roads. You know, you can tinker about, but it's got to be providing reasons for people not to have to travel as they do at the moment so maybe it's over timing when where working from home and so on but it's equally so about having different opportunities now you know road building is going on i mean uh, uh, i live in tonnerevel uh, the a4119 is being dueled there around uh, the unfortunately named Stinkpot Hill, uh, but that uh, duelling is taking place. That's a very significant investment by uh, Ronald Cunningham Council in conjunction with Welsh Government. The other one people forget about, of course, is that the massive investment in what is a significant and important economic artery, which is to open up the valleys to improve the economic uh, uh, opportunities for the valley areas, is, of course, the heads of the valleys road. Yeah. Now, that so far uh, has cost somewhere in the region of 
two billion pounds. That is a road that is important and it is significant because it gives uh, a linkage uh, that can't be provided in the same way by by rail in the same way um, to uh, some of the poorest areas in, in South Wales. Uh, and that's an investment that is ongoing. Anyone who travels around Merthyr now to see the incredible engineering feats that are taking place to enable that to happen. But it's getting that balance right. And I think the assumption in everywhere that you know, all you need to do now to solve a, a traffic congestion problem is build a road. It is, I think it's absolutely right that we have to move away from it. I think it is a, a painful cultural change in terms of our, our attitudes. Uh, and it is on that obviously poses sorts of difficulties and challenges and needs to be thought through, needs to be communicated well. Maybe it needs to be communicated uh, better. But, you know, we can either spend the resources that we have on just building roads or we can start shifting those resources instead to doing something different, and that is by increasing the investment in the metro, in public transport, looking at how we can provide cheaper and more regular bus services uh, as a service to our communities. Yes, uh, and of course there is a difference between the urban Wales and uh, rural Wales. Uh, and the Deputy Minister has had to admit recently that roads are going to be the only serious yeah. contender for transport for the foreseeable future in rural areas because no other forms of transport are viable, really. I mean, buses, you know, they're hoping to organise the buses and have modern electric ones and subsidise the appropriate routes and so on. So the bus travel should sort itself out because that's a nightmare as well at the moment. But, you know, we know the history of that. But roads are essential and and that's kind of acknowledged now. But in urban areas, well, you know, let's wait and see that people will have more confidence once this electric train thing starts running and the trams are zooming up and down you know and there's trains like 12 trains an hour or something going through Pontypridd, isn't it yeah and so i mean it's not that long to wait it just seems like forever it, it seems like forever and, and of course people people forget that of course we only had the devolution of the sort of valleys trains lines uh in 2019 and basically, you know, you can't just magic up trains. They've had to be designed, invested in. The funding's had to be obtained to achieve that. And, of course, the electrification that is taking place. So that is happening. I think the other thing is, of course, is that, you know, for me, one of the big disasters with buses over the decades has, was the fact that the privatisation of the buses, the fact that you end up with basically buses competing for profitable routes uh, with little consideration of the need to service, you know, those rural or semi-rural areas that are much more dependent on public transport. I mean, you know, and I live in Tonnerville, and there is no direct bus from Tonnerville to Pontypridd. Uh, that I find strange, and uh, that is something, you know, hopefully if we can introduce regulation of buses, uh, uh, that would be something that would change. I am very dependent on a car from Tonnerville because doing, doing, the, doing my particular job, I don't have train access, uh, bus service is limited, and, uh, you know, so I'm in what you might call almost a semi-rural uh, area yeah. or so, a suburban area. So there are different needs in different areas, and we have to make sure that we are actually supporting people across Wales in different communities and different types of, uh, you know, environments that they live in. And even if you get, uh, and you probably will get, actually, your, your Clantricent railway link, even, even that wouldn't be straightforward in the sense that if you're trying to get to Pontypridd by train, you still have to go down into town, or at least some of the way into town, Queen Street or somewhere, and change back. 
you know onto a train coming up so it's you know some, some a more organized bus service system is, is clearly required even from a town relatively large town like the one you live in well it's a mixture isn't it it's trains it's it's buses it's also taxis but also, you do have to take into account, uh, you know, cars. I mean, some of the arrangements that we'd want, I mean, hopefully when, uh, you know, in due course, in many years' time, when eventually this new railway link, is, is the line is reopened to, uh, uh, to Lantricent, there will be an opportunity for people, you know, the thing you have to take into account, I think, is, is how people actually get to that link. Yeah. And it does mean the sort of park and ride system. Well, mm. you know, cars aren't, cars aren't disappearing, cars aren't going away, roads aren't going away. We have to maintain the roads we have, and there will be strategic roles, uh, provided they satisfy certain criteria. But it's getting the balance right, and the balance has got to shift far more towards things like public transport. The limited money that we have, instead of going into uh, just road building, uh, could be far better used for the longer term by investing in public transport. And that's, of course, a, a sort of political decision we've had to make. It would have been easier if we'd had the uh, the five billion that we should have had from the HS2 project. But uh, I'm afraid the UK government has carved us out of getting that. Scotland gets eight billion out of the HS2 project. Wales gets absolutely nothing. And uh, that's a scandal. I mean, it's agreed, you know, across all political parties in Wales are uh, 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 recognised that we should be getting that funding, but we don't have it. And just think what we could do with our transport system in Wales with five billion. That that's true, and I and I have noted how the Welsh Conservatives have joined in with the, everyone else, actually, in saying we should have this, even though they're usually completely at odds with Labour government's um, roads. Yeah scheme on hs2 they they kind of agree and it's difficult to know what criteria it's been turned down on really well it's been turned down on what they say is they say oh well the uh, rail system in scotland is uh, completely devolved uh, therefore they get this consequential you know this share of additional funding that is made by uk government uh, Wales's share is normally 5%, but they say, well, Network Rail is an England and Wales project, therefore you get nothing. Uh, I think it's just a deliberate way of not, sp- not not giving what is due to Wales. Wales has been traditionally underinvested in terms of the, the rail transport infrastructure, trying to make it up now. But, um, you know, I, I think it is a scandal and, uh, you know, we're going to keep on campaigning to get that funding because uh, it would make such a difference to what we can do in Wales. Meanwhile, um, the you know the levelling up fund, um, much maligned, uh, is actually contributing to our local, um, albeit in a slightly disorganised way, in the sense that the Welsh government aren't in the loop quite deliberately. But the road you referred to, the eight four double one nine, part of the cost of that now, RCT are getting from the levelling up fund, and this month because there was apparently they they've got hold of some money, which is mostly for grants and so on that will um, kick in in the next financial year next month. But this month, I think they got a whole, just over a million pounds of cash that they had to spend by the end of the financial year. <laughs> and uh, that's how the buses are free, um, because yes. uh, RCT have, have used, you know, they reckon about 500,000. They don't know, but they reckon they're saving people in the county borough yeah. 500,000 pe- m- pounds in the bus fares they would have otherwise yeah. had to pay for the for the month of March. I mean, you can't say the money isn't helpful. I think part of the Porth, the Porth development there, yeah, yeah. you know, the rail um, uh, bus link place is, is being paid for by levelling up funds. And I noticed last week at the um, uh, Welsh Labour conference in Clandidno yes. that Sir Keir Starmer committed and actually said he would 
return the equivalent of the levelling up fund decisions back to the Welsh Government if they win. Yeah, listen, that was a really important statement because, listen, I'll I'll happily see money come in from wherever. The the problem is money needs to come in. It needs to be part of a plan. It needs to be linked in with other areas of investment. You know, merely having a bit of money to spend in one area, um, helpful though that may be, uh, doesn't help you in the long term. You've got to link it in with all the other things, the other interconnectivity, whether it be roads, whether it be transport, whether it be public uh, transport vehicles, Vehicles, you know, and, and, and over a longer period of time. Uh, and it makes no sense really to pick and choose, you know, to dump bits of money here and there. But listen, I'll, I'll welcome any bits of money that we can get in. We, we estimate in Welsh Government at the moment that uh, in real terms, we are down uh, after, after Brexit, we are down by about a billion pounds uh, a year, which is not uh, insignificant. So, you know, the funding situation is really, really tight. And, of course... We promised that uh, you know the Welsh government, that the set, that the Welsh Parliament, that we would not lose a penny. Well, we haven't lost a penny. We've lost uh, well over a billion, and we'll lose more over the coming years. So, basically, getting back to common sense on that and restoring that, so that decision. I mean, you know, if decision making is local, then it needs to be local. You can't have this sort of uh, uh, every now this intervention from here and there saying, "Well, we've decided we know best, and we're going to do this here." You know, somewhere that understands. Nothing about the economy or the demography of Wales. So, you know, those things are important. 4119, listen, very pleased that investment's going on of it, and part of it is money that has come from the levelling up fund. Uh, and uh, that, of course, has released other monies that would have gone into that into other projects. So, you know, Ronald Cunnantaf, I think, has been extremely um, efficient in the way at which it has managed funds, obtained funds, had plans ready to uh, to spend, to develop. You know, I, I think in many ways, Ronald Cunnantaf is a, a shining example of how a good local authority can operate. Um, so that's that's been important. But, you know, there are very, very difficult decisions ahead. We're looking at the public sector pay elements. And, of course, by and large, we can only pay what we get by part, as part of our block grant, but we are devoting money from other areas, from perhaps areas potentially of underspends or from other uh, budgets, uh, in order to try and do what we can to uh, settle the uh, local pay disputes and so on, because they impact on people's lives. And, you know, we've got to respect our public sector workers who did so much during COVID. You know, loads of promises were made to them and, quite frankly, they've not been delivered upon. Well, it seems in the last few days, obviously, this programme, we were recording this programme first thing on, on, on the Friday morning. And by the time it goes out on Sunday night, something may have changed, hopefully for the better. But the UK government seemed to be following a similar route uh, with negotiations with teachers and NHS people that the Welsh government has yeah. followed and very similar amounts of money are being talked about you know a lump sum 1.5% 1, 1. roughly and a lump sum of 1.5 this year which of course ends yeah. like at the end of this month I, I believe actually there is an offer to either the teachers or the NHS people in Wales I know which, which it is that they um, next year's pay uh, adjustment which actually take place in September this year uh, there's 5% on the table uh, for that as well and I, I read that out in a news story earlier this week and a very similar thing is happening in in england so because you know it, it's a war of attrition isn't it and nobody's getting anywhere uh, while they don't they don't even talk well you listen people 
pe- people are very reluctant to take industrial action, and it costs them. It costs them in their pockets. So it's not something that happens easily. People just don't walk out the door. Um, I mean, the difference, I suppose, in, in, in Wales has been that you know, firstly, I think from Welsh government's perspective, we actually think the you know the public sector workers are justified in what they're asking for. Our our uh, difficulty, of course, is being able to say that we've actually got that money to pay for it because we control. Although we employ you know the people in the NHS and we you know the whole set of public sector that is devolved. Of course, the levers in terms of being able to raise funds, the, uh, the all those uh, economic levers. We actually don't control. We, we get as a part of our block grant what the UK government say they are going to, to pay and what they're going to pay for England. So anything else on top of that, we have to find coming out of education, environment, economic investment and, and indeed health as well. So it is a, a very different act. But the difference is, is that we have continually engaged with the trade unions. You know, we have this social partnership model of, you know, employers, businesses and government. Uh, and that's just about to be put in legislation, actually. It's going to be given a statutory uh, uh, basis in a piece of legislation uh, that has just passed through the Senate literally last week. It's going for royal assent now. So we have a very different approach in that we do talk and we do recognise the merit in what's being said. Um, I think what has happened is the, the the extent to which we've been able to come to some form of agreement within Wales, and of course, you know, this and these discussions are, are ongoing, um, I, I think is uh, is something that the UK government is being forced to uh, look at for England as well. You know, it really is disappointing that there hasn't been more engagement there because that would also benefit us. But, you know, quite frankly, our public sector workers want to want to do their job, but they want to be properly paid for it and they want to be able to have a decent standard of living and they're entitled to that. So, you know, there's a lot of merit uh, to everything that is said and what we really do need is about prioritising where public sector stands in our economy. Yes, and anything that the UK government does do on behalf of England, you know, is consequential to to us here. So, uh, you know, if they do, um, you know, uh, come up with a a settlement for teachers or NHS staff or or anyone else, which is actually better than the one here that they can afford at the moment, the Welsh government, then they will, they've promised to equal you know equalize everything from the extra cash they will get as a consequence so it's it's a kind of no-lose strategy but earlier this week actually there was a moment where our news you know we get news from london from sky our national news and they're very good actually recognizing now the difference between welsh stories and english stories and in their news bulletins on the hour they're quite good at delineating and making it clear that there's a strike in england or whatever but the headline writers who send the headlines through for the half hour, which we only use at breakfast and tea time, are not as, you know, they just mm. whack them out. So I found that our presenter on Wednesday was reading out a, a story that was actually not true in Wales at all, because it was a list of, of all sorts of people, health workers, ambulance workers, train workers, that were on strike in England, none of whom were yeah. on strike here. And I contacted him and said, actually, drop that story, because actually none of it is true of Wales. And and I thought actually that's a bit of a significant step that because uh, they're all you know they're all interested parties on both sides of the border except for the train people which is kind of an unusual thing because we've got transport for Wales and yeah. you know they've got a deal and they haven't got a dispute and all of that junior doctors we're also and yes, yeah. touch wood don't have a problem with them at the moment or not not one that's turning into industrial action so those were two English unique things 
but most of the list was action that had been cancelled or put on hold here because of useful talks with the government that hadn't been. And it's resulted, actually, in the UK government towards the end of the week putting the brakes on and saying, come in for a chat. Yeah. I mean, it, listen, it's re- you, listen, you only resolve these things by talking, and it's really important that those talks are now taking place. Uh, I did see, though, of course, one of the disputes where there seems to be a disagreement listening on the radio recently was, of course, with regard to settlement of uh, the dispute in England, uh, whether it is new money or whether it is money that has to be found from within NHS England. Now, that is important to us. Uh, because what's important to NHS England, I mean, if it's from internal money, it means cutting the amount of money available to provide medical services in England in order to pay for it. That is not what the unions understand. They say they've been given an assurance that this is going to be new money. That's important to us in Wales, because if it's new money, then we should get a consequential. And that will enable us maybe to move further with regard to our own public sector workers. So, um, you know, seeing what happens there is important. But it also, what it does show is one of the dysfunctions in terms of the devolution financial arrangement that we're almost having to be reactive to a decision that has been taken for England uh, rather than for the UK as a whole or for Wales, etc. And that is something that in the longer term needs to be sorted out. You know, the way the financial arrangements between the nations of the UK actually operate because at the moment it seems to me if something needs to happen well England will take a decision to do it Um, but if Wales or Scotland uh, decide to do something uh, there's no funding available for it so that that really needs to change it's not fair it doesn't work it's dysfunctional and is one of the sort of trickier areas that needs to be resolved hopefully by the next government. Yes, and and if Labour were to win the general election, interestingly, they haven't committed to the HS2 uh, thing, I noticed. Um, So it isn't a foregone conclusion that everything would be rosy, um, actually. But, um, you know, they they don't believe in proportional representation at all. It's on the bottom of their priority list. It's a different way of looking at life. So it will be different. If there is a change of government coming up at the next election, do you think that will help Wales? generally or not oh listen it it will there was undoubtedly that it will even if it is just for example the uh the leveling up funding coming to be properly part of the uh you know economic and social development funding within wales as a whole but also in terms of restoring the proper principles that underpin even the existing financial settlement And I think there is an unanswerable case in terms of HS2. I think the reluctance for any government before an election uh, is to start holding down its financial plans too far ahead of, of, of that election because there are so many things that may change before you get to that election. There's another major budget that's going to take place, what the state of the economy is and public finances, etc., But uh, it seems to me pretty clear that there are certain principles that have been established in terms of uh, how funding takes place. Uh, And certainly in Wales, we will expect those in due course, if there's a change of government, uh, that those will actually be be honoured. 
Um, you know, the same in terms of, you know, you mentioned proportional representation. Well, of course, I met with Keir at, uh, at the conference. Uh, I raised the issue of proportional representation. I didn't get a response, but I didn't get a, a expect to get a response. I did give him the concession that it was a rhetorical question. Yeah. But I think what is recognised is that there is a sort of constitutional dysfunction in terms of relationship between the uh, nations of the UK. It's very clear now on the back of Gordon Brown's report that Keir Starmer is very committed now to decentralisation of power. He was very, very clear in his speech to that conference that the UK is far too centralised. We've got to give far more local decision-making powers. And that has all sorts of consequences in terms of the relationships and for devolution as well. You know, devolution for England is going to be a very, very important thing. So I think there is a, a lot of things that may, may, may well happen if we get that change of government. And judging by the fact there hasn't been any criticism of it, it would appear that the UK government's Rishi Sunak's initiatives about Ireland appear to have gone down quite well, generally smart move to involve the king in a unionist issue i thought i thought that was a re- i smiled because people were saying oh you shouldn't be doing that you shouldn't be doing that i thought well actually it's the it's the cherry on the top of that one i thought uh, he's got much more chance of getting it through if the unions actually tell their leadership that it's time to bury the hatchet he's got his green line or whatever it is green thing but what, what was really ironic was how he waxed lyrical about the position that northern ireland is in in the um, enviable position, yeah. I'm not sure whether he used the word enviable or not, but his sentence painted this enviable picture of being in both the UK and the single market. Isn't that wonderful? W- se- were we all in that before? Yes. Well, <laughs> well, in the Senate, uh, Mark Drakeford uh, said during questions, he said, well, he said it sounds a very attractive deal. He said, uh, we'd, we'd quite like some of it within Wales, you know, take us back, back to the future, you know. And uh, no, he's right. I mean, and, they, and of course... Uh, in in those terms, uh, Northern Ireland would be in a, a unique position, part of the single market, part of the UK market. Well, I mean, who wouldn't want that? Um, well, you know, I don't want to sort of relive the arguments again over uh, Brexit and everything, but uh, he, he was absolutely right. But I'm not quite sure whether he saw the uh, irony in his own comments uh, uh, at that moment in time. I mean, hopefully the Northern Ireland... Uh, uh, issue will be resolved. It needs to be resolved because mm. it's not good for the Welsh economy either. No. You know the transfer, the number of um, uh, amount of goods that are no longer going through the UK that are now being bypassed uh, has a very significant impact on the Welsh economy. Um, it has an impact on the Welsh ports, um, uh, and that is significant. And whether we will ever recover fully from those will 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 have to will remain to be seen but it's not going to recover by any stretch of the imagination uh, unless the uh, the issue is resolved and um, you know it's really down in the hands now of the DUP this small group of uh, MPs in Northern Ireland uh, who uh, are really sort of um, the tail wagging the dog at the moment and uh, we'll have to wait and see what they do because it seems to me pretty clear that most people in Northern Ireland uh, want this resolved. Um, but if it doesn't happen, um, uh, there are probably other constitutional consequences in terms of the Good Friday Agreement and mm. so on. Mm. Uh, with no polit- political hat on at all, it did seem a very well thought through mm. way 
without passing a law that says, you know, if we don't agree with the European Union, we, you can, we can just ignore them. That was the previous strategy, apparently. Um, and that isn't the strategy now. And it was followed by uh, a useful and positive meeting between our prime minister and, and uh, the president in, uh, in France. But we need to get on with them. They need to get on with us and we need to get on with them. And it was nice to actually see some handshakes and some smiles, even though there are massive political differences between the leaders of our countries, because we just haven't seen that for so long. Well, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, I mean, partly impacts on Wales. We refuse to give it legislative consent in the Senate, and that would push the UK government to a position of choosing to break what's called the Sewell Convention, uh, where you know UK government will not legislate in devolved areas. Uh, that create another constitutional problem between Wales and the UK government. The other difficulty, of course, is that that bill uh, is almost you know universally recognised as being unlawful in breach of international law, and which is again something of very very deep concern uh, that UK government might consider doing that. Uh, so the fact that they're not going to proceed with that bill now, I think, is really really important um, for a whole variety of other reasons as well. So we just have to wait and see now over the next uh, next few weeks, I suppose. And the other crisis they have to still solve is the one with the um, people in boats coming across the channel. And, and the, the new powers that are proposed seem draconian to the extreme. Uh, obviously, there is, there is a, a major problem to be sorted out in mind, which everyone recognises, I think, whatever the political persuasion. But that's another one. You, you, you have a legal hat. You know, yeah. some of the things proposed, are, people are saying, are illegal under international law. The government is saying, no, they aren't. They're OK. But actually, even the Home Secretary has admitted under a breath that they're pushing the boundaries a bit with this. Well, it's actually further than that. The, the bill actually says on its front page uh, that it is not compliant with uh, international law, well, with the uh, Convention of Human Rights. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 they have tabled a bill which on its front page basically says uh, this is unlawful, that you can't do this within the law, uh, and they've still tabled it. It is absolutely horrific that you can have a government that would be prepared to bring that forward uh, and basically say what we're doing is unlawful, we're going to break the law, uh, and uh, we don't care, we're going to start breaking the conventions that we have signed up to over many decades since the Second World War. It's in breach of a whole, it would put us in breach of a whole series of uh, conventions, the Refugees Convention, the Hub European Convention on Human Rights, uh, various international agreements, and that is universally recognised, and there's no, you know, there is no defence to it. The crux of the problem as well is the misleading information. You know, European countries take far more refugees uh, than we do. So, you know, our position has always been one of uh, we don't care uh, what other countries do. They can take all the responsibility as long as we don't have to. That is part of the uh, attitude. But the other bigger problem is, is that we've got a system that just doesn't allow for proper legal routes through into the UK. And if you don't have that, it means that the only way people can arrive is illegally. Now, on the basis that we are probably over the decades in the future going to see further waves of movements of populations, some not just because of wars, but potentially because of climate change, we have to have the system that actually works and that works efficiently and that works in accordance with the law and treats people as human beings. If I had to say there's one thing that really concerns me more than anything, 
when you stop calling people human beings, when you stop calling men and women and children men, women and children, and you start talking about them as though they are the problem to be solved, I think that says something that really undermines our civilization, our humanity, uh, and we have to start talking about people di di differently. You know, people who have been traumatized, uh, people who, whether it be extreme poverty, extreme war, people who have been tortured or whatever, there has to be a proper and efficient system for enabling those that, that uh, come to the UK in whatever way they come to be properly treated but also to have a proper system for assessing their, their ability to remain or not to remain. We've put the world to rights pretty well today. Almost. We've talked a bit about local stuff which occasionally we, we don't so it's good that we've talked about some, some issues here in RCT. Is there anything else here in our immediate area that in the last few minutes you want to summarise that, that's going on that you think is good or should be... Uh, there was a great big housing development I noticed passed by the planners after a few amendments down by Miskin which, which uh, I know you have a lot of view, you, well, you mentioned earlier on actually have views about housing developments because of road infrastructure and so on. Well, I suppose the one thing that is important is the consideration at the moment of local development plans by the council. And the reason they're important is because they will be assessing things like how much housing are we going to need, how much land are we going to need for housing, where should it be, what for the infrastructure should be. And it's really important that people actually engage within those consultations because once they are concluded, where areas have been identified for proper further housing, um, you know, if people have views on that, they have to make them known now. They have to engage in that consultation process because councils have to plan. They have to plan ahead for, for a decade. They have to plan on what resources are needed, where schools are needed uh, uh, and where infrastructure is required. And those impact on people's lives. They impact on people's communities. And often it is too late to do it once those plans, those consultations are over and the plans have been decided. So now is the time people go onto the RCT website. They'll see quite a bit of information about local development plans and how they can engage with them yes so they should do that obviously before the deadline yes. on this on this major thing is about 460 houses i think mm. but but they did actually you know there was feedback the community did say well we don't think these i think there's only about four four plots actually but they're significant because they're near existing housing mm. you know and there wasn't um there was some intervention and the council of che you know said well actually you need to change the plans because of the feedback which they then did yes and it, it proves the system works, actually. Yeah, but ch ch listen, changes do get made uh, to them in terms of whether it be the size, whether it be the infrastructure, the type of housing, the share between social housing and private housing. And, you know, we have to recognise, I think, you know, maybe we have to chat about housing one day because one of the big issues is, you know, people saying, well, I don't want social housing near me or whatever. Let, let's face it, many of our children in the future uh, the only type of housing they're going to have is going to be uh, supported housing, social housing, because of the imbalance between housing prices uh, and earnings. You know, so um, we need to build more social housing, affordable housing, call, call it what, what we want to call it. But basically people need homes and we've got to make sure those homes are available, but in the right place, with the right connectivity to public transport uh, and in the right density as well. 
Well, maybe we'll reserve some time in the next um, chat, actually, in a month's time, Mick, to, to, get, to look at that, because I know it's something you've been involved just personally in a lot, in down in the Tristan area, particularly in your, you know, yeah, your, your yeah. greater patch. So we'll, we'll come back to it next month, and we'll make a, make a point of doing that. Thank you very um, much. Meanwhile, uh, good luck if you go off to another trip to Ukraine. Uh, best of luck to you with that, and uh, we'll meet in a month's time. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you.